Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we examine some of the music of singer-songwriter Randy Newman and his vision of an off-kilter America. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. Most people, if they know Randy Newman at all, they know him through his film work, especially the work that he's done for Pixar. He's become sort of the musical voice of Pixar in a lot of ways, whether it's uh, You've Got a Friend in Me from the Toy Story franchise or uh, If I Didn't Have You from Monsters, Inc. There are several songs, affable, easygoing songs, sung in a somewhat atypical and yet ingratiating voice that has become familiar within the American musical, specifically cinematic musical, landscape. And yet, Randy Newman began his career first as a kind of uh, songwriter for hire, working with um, metric music, uh, kind of West Coast counterbalance, less successful counterbalance to the Brill building on the East Coast. And he sold songs to various singers, um, uh, before he had his own debut, got signed to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers released his first album under the title Randy Newman Creates Something New Under the Sun, a title that he objected to. Uh, that's a lot of pressure to put on an emerging artist, obviously. And yet, if that moniker is going to fit an album of the of the late 60s uh, and and it could fit several albums i suppose of the late 60s i think randy newman's debut album is certainly a candidate it is a strange and rewarding if somewhat alienating experience to listen to that album uh, to uh, to most of his albums uh but in this podcast we're really concerned uh in this episode at least we're really concerned with just a few early albums um, up through and including Rednecks, or Good Old Boys, rather, which includes the song Rednecks. On the first album, on, on Randy Newman Creates Something New Under the Sun, part of what grabs one's attention is not just the peculiar voice that one hears, and, but, but the orchestration and the approach to songwriting. Randy Newman, in various interviews has said that he's not much interested in himself, that he relatively rarely, especially in the albums that we're talking about, writes about himself at all. It's not until, I think it was 1988's uh, Land of Dreams, where he starts to write some autobiographical songs. And even those, and that would be worth exploring in a later episode, even those are a little bit strange, right? Newman said in an interview, I don't interest me. I couldn't name you any song where I was writing about me. Of course, that's, that's no longer true since that. Or who knows, maybe it is even true of the Land the Dream songs. But he says, I mean, there's a whole world of people, and there's no reason why a songwriter should be limited any more than a short story writer or a novelist. 
in another interview, and, and here I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, he says, you know, Alice Monroe, the famous short story writer, Pulitzer Prize winning short story writer, uh, she didn't write about herself. She didn't put herself in her stories and no one was surprised. Why are they so surprised that I don't appear in my songs? Now, to a certain extent, you might be thinking, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why would anyone insist on that? And yet, think about it for a minute. We do tend to think of songs as reflections of the person singing, uh, except in relatively rare circumstances. And even then, there, we often think of it as a persona they wouldn't mind temporarily adopting. This might not sit well with you, because uh, I, I imagine, if you've listened to other podcasts, you're thinking of other examples I've used in the in the past, right? For instance, uh, the Rolling Stones emulating the Boston Strangler or Satan himself in, in two different songs, obviously, Midnight Rambler for the Boston Strangler um, and Sympathy for the Devil, obviously, when he's imitating Satan himself. And yet, there's a certain extent to which we might suggest, and, and one doesn't have to agree, of course, that Jagger is trying on these other personae because even though they're exaggerations of his own persona, they're exaggerations of that persona. I'm not suggesting that Mick Jagger uh, wants to be or is a rapist, but something about that, that overt approach to sexuality and control and manipulation is not entirely outside of the persona that he projects on stage and in his songs. Again, I'm not saying that that's necessarily him, but he's comfortable with the idea of it representing him. And certainly, or seems to be, and certainly when we're talking about a, a genre like the singer-songwriter genre of the, of the late 60s and early 70s, that is a genre known for its confessional approach to songwriting. And yet Newman says something rather clever, in my opinion. He says, you know, I think you actually learn more about me. I'm paraphrasing again. I think you actually learn more about me in my songs, even though they're not about me, and they're about people that I don't identify with, than you do in the songs of, say, the typical singer-songwriter, whether that's uh, James Taylor or Carole King or, or whomever. Right, And they're purportedly writing about themselves and their own experiences. And sometimes in very you know, intriguing, poetic, intellectual ways. Think of Joni Mitchell. And yet part of the kind of contract that we assume with songs like that is that we're getting some glimpse into them, that we relate to them. That when we're listening to the singer, a songwriter, we're listening to them confess their feelings that they've had, their experiences that they've had. And Newman seems to do the exact opposite. He distances himself and creates a series of unreliable narrators. So not only are we listening to songs that we are somehow supposed to understand they're not, representative of him. And that's, that's an interesting problem, too, that I want to make sure we touch upon. But that also, these are songs where we can't even totally rely on what we're being told, because it be, often becomes clear that the person doing the telling is not someone we can trust. It's not someone that we want to accept, their, uh, uh, that at least their messages are not something we want to accept. And so we're in the realm of dramaturgy rather than autobiographical confession. And that puts us also, at least for Randy Newman, in the realm of the tall tale. 
Because a lot of his songs are about people, or rather are representations of people, exaggerating. Trying to portray their feelings, their resentments often, about the world. And yet revealing quite a bit about themselves in the process of doing so. Right? Things that they probably don't intend to reveal. And all of this is bound up in ambiguity. And that returns us to that question. How do we even know that he's being sarcastic? That he's being ironic? That he's not um, telling us how he actually feels? Sometimes it's easy because the messages are so extreme. And other times it's, it's not so straightforward. For instance, in an early album, he uh, produces a cover of, the, of an old minstrel-related song, Under the Harlem Moon which includes words like darky and so on. And there's no indication in the song itself that this is meant to be an ironic display, right? It's, it's on the second album, uh, 12 Songs, where he's getting a bit more of a, a, a country influence in, in the um, instrumentation and so on. Ry Cooter, for instance, is, is the guitarist on the album. It's a great album, right? And they perform this song, but there's no real indication that we're not supposed to think of it as just a song he, he liked and wanted to include on his album. No doubt he probably did like it. Why would he include something that he thought was, was terrible, right? Um, and yet just the gesture of singing this outdated song, not exactly modernizing it, but also not totally falling into a kind of period piece either, makes it such an odd gesture that you're forced to ask questions. And I think that's part of how we know, right? He goads us into asking questions. Clearly not everyone knows. The famous story, of course, is Short People, much later in the album, Thinks from 77, uh, Criminal Minds, with the backing group is largely the, the Eagles. And he's, uh, he has a song on there, Short People, which he says, and which I think is relatively clear, that, that it's about how ridiculous all prejudice is because he goes on and on about these prejudices against, uh, against people who are not of average height. And yet, when the song was released, there were plenty of people who took it seriously. The same thing happened with his song Political Science, which we'll talk about, a bit about in the, um, in a, the last segment. So part of his, I think, efficacy as an ironist is that you can't always tell. And that puts him in an interesting position as far as his, his vision of America goes. It's often said when, when people are writing about Randy Newman that part of his outsider glance at the world is because of his Jewish heritage. And, and everyone mentions that he really wasn't raised with any strong sense of Jewishness. The, the famous story is that he was invited to go to a cotillion by a girl, and uh, at the relative last minute, her father called up and said she had no right to, uh, to invite you to the... To the um, Cotillion, which was being held at a um, country club. And he said that this country club doesn't allow Jews in. And according to the story, he, and this is a story his father actually tells more than he tells, uh, that he then went to his father and asked, what's a Jew? <laughs> like he had gotten to the age of dating and didn't realize, first of all, what what. Jewishness was, and, 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 and second of all, that he was Jewish. Now, whether this is an apocryphal story or not, it seems, it seems a little dubious, right? But 
I think the point is that that for Newman, his Jewishness is always sort of to the side. I'm not I'm not trying to discredit the notion that part of his his outsider glance comes from his Jewish heritage and his experience of that heritage. I'm trying to augment that story by saying that there's something else at play here. And to me, that something else is his Americanness. Now, I'm not saying that every American feels like an outsider, but there is a certain um, cultural drift that goes, a current that runs through the history of this country that that the citizens of the country always feel, to some extent, like outsiders. Outsiders to their neighbors, outsiders to the world. That part of it, and, and it's not simply the U.S. That, that deals with situations like this, of course, but part of the history of the country is that it is unmoored by tradition, or at least by grounded tradition, that the traditions are brought from elsewhere and that they're polyglot, ultimately, in nature. That, that the, we tend to tell the story as though it's Anglo-Saxon traditions that, that come and get implanted in the, in the soil and everyone else you know, gets to um, be pushed out, ultimately. But of course, the story is much more complicated than that, right? That even the colonists that came felt alienated. That's why they left. They left because they wanted land. They left because they wanted religious freedom. They left for all sorts of reasons, money, opportunity, whatever. They felt that they weren't getting something at home, And notice that, right, that part of their way of making it is to feel distant from home, to feel outside of those traditions. There's the famous line uh, from the, I think, the 1950s, where uh, some European composer asked John Cage, you know, how can you compose when you're so far away from traditions? And he says, well, how can you compose when you're so close to it? And that seems to me like the American quandary. On the one hand, uh, the American feels, uh, some Americans, and this, this notion. Uh, They feel alienated from traditions, and yet at the same time, that alienation is a kind of opportunity. And right from the beginning, music was played out in this way. Think about the, the first, what was considered the first indigenous form of U.S. music, which was minstrel music. The dance and obviously the face paint and so on was meant to emulate African Americans, but the music of the of early uh, minstrel songs like uh, like Jim Crow and um, Zip Coon, the the music came from old folk songs from from the British Isles, and they weren't adapted to sound more black, right? And yet. The syncopation and so on that was already there in the music gets read as being black. So right from the beginning, there's a kind of identity crisis in American, what becomes American or U.S., better, better put, music. That it represents more than it is and, and is always somewhat less than it represents. Newman seems to find that aspect of the U.S. fascinating. It's, it's various contradictions. And we might say that, that what he represents is a kind of off-kilter America. And that's obviously the title of this episode. But the, what I mean by that isn't that his view is off-kilter or that he only uh, emphasizes the off-kilter elements, those elements of, of U.S. society that are out of balance. But rather, he sees the U.S. as inherently out of balance, as inherently off-kilter as having various issues that surround ideas about, uh, about race, 
about uh, love, romantic love, uh, and about love of country, and about God, that, as far as he's concerned, are so deeply implanted in the American spirit that we live out constantly a contradiction. And this is an important point, and then we're going to take a break and, and move to, to some uh, interpretations of his music as such. For Randy Newman, those unlovable characters have something redeeming about them, no matter how racist, no matter how evil, no matter how violent. There's always some bit of humanity there. He never makes monsters out of his characters, even though they believe monstrous things sometimes and say all sorts of careless, reckless, and unfortunate things. There's always something about them that remains human and often American. Let's take a look at some specific songs. The songs that are political in nature are in some ways the easiest to grapple with, right? A song like The Beehive State, its main joke is that nobody knows much about Utah, right? Uh, and even Newman says that he felt like he didn't quite, he didn't go far enough, that the song needed to be longer, he just ran out of ideas. But it's actually quite punchy the way that it works, right? There's a statement by a senator from Kansas that culminates in, we need a firehouse for Topeka, and a statement from Utah that culminates in, mostly we just need to get the word out about Utah, because nobody seems to know. And this idea of a country that doesn't know itself, and isn't aware of its own uh, constituents, seems to me to be part of the point, right? That the ideal of rugged individualism, which is, uh, you know, one sort of mythos of, of American history, can translate into rugged indifference 
right? Or in differentism, uh, that, that you get to be so individual that the things going on around you don't seem to matter anymore. But he also takes on, in a song like Political Science, uh, the, the kind of bellicosity, the warlike nature of, of nationalism in general, but certainly, uh, in his eyes, U.S. nationalism. The, again, the premise of the song is quite simple. Uh, let's bomb everyone, and you know, we'll, we'll save Australia just to make an amusement park out of it. But that the world will be much more peaceful if we just get rid of everybody that doesn't like us, which is everybody, as far as the song is concerned. And the thing that surprised Newman is that people took it seriously. Now, in this case, I have to, I have to sympathize with Newman. I don't see how anyone can take a song that, that says, let's drop the big one and pulverize them. Uh, talking about, uh, you know, bombing Paris, uh, uh, boom, goes Par- boom goes London, boom Paris, more room for you, more room for me, right? It's ridiculous on its face. And yet the fact that it was taken seriously perhaps is telling. It tells us that, that, this, that his target is not just a straw man. It's not just empty. Right? It's taken as, as being potentially the way he actually feels because there are people out there that actually feel that way. And that's one of the keys, I think, to Newman's irony. He takes his irony serious enough that he doesn't wink at you for the most part. There are songs that are very clearly winking at you so that you know this is all a joke. But songs like Short People, songs like Political Science, they're ridiculous on their face. But if you know somebody who is like that and you suspect Newman might be like that, maybe then don't feel as ridiculous. What I'm trying to suggest is that the people who, who don't catch the irony, they're not dumb. They just have experiences with people where this sounds familiar. And that's because uh, Newman does his irony quite well. And that's what makes it work the way that it does. A good ironist doesn't have to sit there and wink at you. Doesn't have to say, oh, rest assured, this is all a joke. It loses some of the punch to the irony when one does that. And it makes it so that the narrators, as unsympathetic as they might be in their, in their inherent nature, are totally unsympathetic and simply ridiculed otherwise, right? If, if one doesn't take the irony seriously. One can see similar concerns in songs like Louisiana, where, where it actually, it's not similar, it's the reverse, right? Louisiana makes it clear that uh, the, the suspicion is toward the government, right? That they're trying to wash us away. That the, the, it's recounting the flood from, what was it, 1927. And the, one of the moments that made Herbert Hoover famous because of the way he dealt with, with the flood. Um, not yet being president. Uh, Coolidge was the, was the actual president, right? And in the song, Coolidge comes down and says, you know, look what's happened to the, the poor cracker's land, right? So that Coolidge is trying to be sympathetic, but he's getting it all wrong. And it's the, the structure, the power structure of the U.S. that allowed it to happen the way that it happened in the first place. That the uh, flood was, was uh, that the protections against flooding and so on were set up to ensure that businesses and wealthy people were protected and the poor could be washed away. And that leaves a song like Dayton, Ohio, 
which I think is a Newman masterpiece. Actually, everything we're talking about so far, I, I consider Newman masterpieces. But Dayton, Ohio is a very interesting one because this is a nostalgic look back at, uh, at the early 20th century, a small, relatively small town, right, of Dayton, Ohio. And this idea of, of the comforts of small town living where you wave to neighbors and you might come in to say hello and, and have a little tea. Does he mean it? Is this actual nostalgia? It's hard to trust him in a way because he isn't there to a certain extent. He's always providing us with narrators that he tells us again and again aren't trustworthy. And so you have a song like that that in most songwriters' hands would be sim- a simple nostalgia trip, especially when uh, laced with the kind of music, the, the allusions to ragtime and Tim Pan Alley and, and the sophisticated harmonies and so on that he brings to bear there. It, f- it can feel sentimental. It can feel mawkish. And it does sometimes when other people do that song. And the same uh, applies to I Think It's Gonna Rain Today, uh, which is one of my favorite songs by him. I was shocked to find out it's not one of his favorite songs of his, his own writing. But that one's been covered several times, and I don't think any of the covers do it much justice. They all seem to miss the point. They take it too seriously as a straightforward confession of loneliness. But the song's actually much more ironic than that. The opening lines read, Broken windows and empty hallways, a pale dead moon in the sky streaked with gray. Human kindness is overflowing, and I think it's going to rain today. Notice the twist there, right? That at first it seems like we have all this imagery of isolation. Broken windows, empty hallways. Right? He's abandoned, he's alone, or she, it doesn't matter. Pale dead moon in a sky streaked with, with gray. So the, the, the moon's not only uh, a symbol of, of night and, and longing, and so on, now it's dead, right? And think of, about being moonstruck, that when one is in love, one sings paeans to the moon, but here the moon is dead, it's not a living thing, it's not something that, that we would uh, associate with, with a viable love, right? It's a dead love. But then that third line is bewildering. Why is human kindness being invoked here? Right? Broken windows, empty hallways, pale dead moon, and the sky streaked with gray. Human kindness is overflowing, and I think it's going to rain today. So the, the, the overflowing leads into the rain today. We think of it's going to rain today as a sign of loneliness, but where's the, the human kindness part come from? Right? This is a song not just of a loss of love or of loneliness, but of general disaffection. I don't think we're supposed to hear that human kindness is overflowing line as being sincere. It might be a a bit of sarcasm. It might be uh, a sense of of disillusion. And it goes on. Those lines come back, right? Um, each time with each verse. So the next verse is scarecrows dressed in the latest styles with frozen smiles to chase love away. So again, this imagery of things that aren't alive that seem like they should be alive or that were once invested with a sense of life, like the moon. But then again, human kindness is overflowing. I think it's going to rain today. And it continues into the bridge where, in, in, again, his version, I think, is the best. His voice is almost cracking and, and calling out, lonely, lonely, right? Which could easily sound maudlin. It could easily sound overly dramatic and overly sentimental. And yet, with him, it sounds 
almost indiscernible. Is it a mere statement? He's just saying he's lonely. Is he taking some ownership of his own loneliness, which is one way that it's sometimes been read? Is it mere lament? But then he says, tin can at my feet. I think I'll kick it down the street. That's the way to treat a friend, which to me is a remarkable line that he's walking alone and this object that's obviously a human object, a can, a tin can, it was produced by human beings for human beings, was, uh, it held nourishment at one point. Now I'm assuming it's empty the way that he's describing it. And those kinds of inanimate objects, especially man-made objects, I think we, and, and not just man-made objects, natural objects too, we do sometimes make friends with them. They seem to reach out to us in our loneliness. And it's not atypical, of course, to kick a tin can or a, or a rock or whatever down the street, right, as a way of sort of amusing yourself temporarily. It hardly even amounts to amusement, just something to do as you're ruminating, as you're walking. And yet he recognizes it as, as a way that people treat friends, kicking them down the street. Human kindness is indeed overflowing in this ironic manner. And then in the last verse, we might as well finish it up, right? Bright before me, the signs implore me to help the needy and show them the way. Human kindness is overflowing. I think it's going to rain today. So again, this, uh, this idea of the needy showing up, a charity showing up, right? So this idea of his loneliness isn't just personal loneliness, but something inherent in the way that we live in the world. And then all of our various remedies to that, romantic love, charity, they're all questionable at best, right? He seems, to, he seems to be, or at least this narrator, and I think that's important to keep reminding ourselves, not Newman, this narrator, whoever this narrator is, is so disaffected that he's alienated from all forms of love. This is all stuff I would love to revisit in greater detail in another episode. Do more things on Randy Newman. If, you know, anyone is the least bit interested, we'll wait and see. But for now, let's get to the most difficult part. 
right? And we'll, we'll keep it brief to make it as palatable as possible. And that's, of course, Randy Newman's take on race. Now, the way I just set it up makes it sound like I, I have a problem with Randy Newman's take on race. And I do, in a, in a way, I, I think that there's something very clever about what he's doing. I think that there's something very necessary about what he's doing. But it's also designed to make us extremely uncomfortable. I think it should make us extremely uncomfortable. And then that's the brilliance of it. That usually when songs are about race, there are, of course, racist songs that are just declaring that it's okay to uh, discriminate against others. And same thing with sexist songs. There are plenty, there's plenty of material if you're looking for outright racism. Then there's also plenty of material that excoriates race, that criticizes, uh, sorry, that excoriates racism, that criticizes racism. And usually this is a, some, some great songs are written this way, but the, that part of the point of the song is to accrue a sense of, of virtue for the singer, for the, for the writer. And of course, we all must agree that this is, uh, this is the case. There's, there, there are very few songs that attempt uh, to really understand the roots of racism in any strong way, outside of, say, uh, the English punk band Crass and a, few, a handful of other examples. A lot of, of hardcore punk actually comes to mind right now, but there, there are other examples. Randy Newman has a very different take. Instead of lecturing us about racism or endorsing racism, what he does is he presents a character who is racist, who attempts to in some way justify it with revelations uh, occurring as, as that narrator does so. The two great examples, and one I'll spend more time with than the other, but let's, uh, are Sail Away from the album Sail Away and then Rednecks from the album Good Old Boys. Sail Away has a simple concept. It's a, uh, a slave trader who is obviously in Africa talking to black people about how great it'll be it, when and if they come to America. In other words, what he's doing is he's offering a sales pitch. Now, of course, this is part of how we know that it's irony, of course, that, that this is not what happened in, uh, in the slave trade, right? But this, the, the pitch is meant to be somewhat convincing. Let's, let's uh, read through it quickly. Well, part of it anyway. It opens, In America, you get food to eat. Won't have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. You'll just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American. Now, notice that there are several things going on here. We, we really only need this first verse, right? He's making a sales pitch, knowing that he's, he's going to take them as slaves to work in the country, not to be an American, and yet that's the sale, right? That, that they'll have food to eat, they won't have to run around to collect food, but of course, what's not being said is all the work that they'll actually have to do. The line about sing about Jesus and drink wine all day, right, is, is almost straight out of minstrelsy, and, a, and it's also got a sort of modern um, edge to it. This is 1972, this is before the Reagan era, and yet, you know, some of the conservative politics of the Reagan era obviously are already in play by the time you get to Nixon, right? Um, and so this idea of, of um, uh, the prejudice against black people, that they're, that they're lazy drunkards and that they're, they're sort of naively focused on, on Jesus and God, 
um, that's all packed into this line, right? Notice the economy of his writing here. So much gets done uh, time-wise and, and um, the, the whole history of, of racism gets packed into these little lines. All saying, ultimately, it's great to be an American. When we know from the song, if nothing else, that is not so great, right? That, that his idea of what is an American is a person who's deeply vexed with a, a loss of a sense of tradition, of, uh, of an unmoored state of being. And, of course, part of that, a large part of that, is wrapped up in racial uh, dynamics. The fact that from the beginning of this country, uh, there was a, a, an investment in inequity, in the derision of some for the benefit of others. And not all of the others really benefited. In fact, uh, I would say no one benefited. I think that's part of the point. Uh, benefited financially, sure. S several people did, right? Several generations of people did. But ultimately, the rot goes through the entire country, at least in, um, in Randy Newman's vision. The even more disturbing song for many people is Rednecks, which is the lead-in song for what was originally a concept album. Maybe it's still a concept album. I don't know. It depends on how you read it. Uh, good old boys, right? This is his foray into the South and really trying to understand um, the Southern white mind. Largely the white mind is what he's concerned with here. And the opening song, Rednecks, is a, it is a masterpiece. It's a troubling masterpiece, right? Uh, it opens with a real-life incident. Lester Maddox was on a TV show. He was on the Dick Cavett show. And uh, at least as far as Randy Newman was concerned, he got treated rather poorly. Some of that was staged. Lester Maddox decided he was going to storm off to sort of make his reputation. He had nothing to lose, really. But the song opens... Oh, and just to be clear, Lester Maddox is a... Um, at this point, he was a restaurant owner who... Um, was anti-Semitic and, and, and obviously racist, anti-black. And during the, um, the civil rights movement and when they were integrating uh, restaurants and, and lunch diners and so on, lunch counters and so on, uh, he very proudly uh, escorted African-American protesters off of the premises and just people looking to eat, escorted them off the premises, usually with a, a pick handle in his hand or a gun or whatever. Um, so he's someone that came to, to fame and power um, in, in Alabama as, a, uh, as a, a segregationist. And Newman felt he was poorly treated. Not that he, he shouldn't have been um, criticized. Newman certainly felt he should be criticized, should be taken to task, but that he wasn't able to get a word in edgewise. This is Newman's reading of it. It doesn't matter whether we would agree with it watching the episode or not, right? And so the song opens, Last night I saw Lester Maddox on a TV show with some smart-ass New York Jew, and the Jew laughed at Lester Maddox, and the audience laughed at Lester Maddox too. Okay. First of all, Dick Cavett is not Jewish. <laughs> he's, he's very much wasp, right? White, white Anglo-Saxon person. Um, and, uh, but the idea that, that this Southern character would misidentify, uh, Dick Cavett, I think is part of the ploy here, right? That if they're against Lester Maddox, that that's part of a Northern, uh, citified, uh, Jewish thing. 
right? And he goes on, he may be a fool, but he's our fool. If they think they're better than him, then they're wrong, right? And then he, he goes to the park and he writes the song. So this idea that, that he belongs to us. He's not, he might not be a smart fellow. He might not be the best fellow, but he belongs to us. So this idea of a, a sense of belonging and so on, a sense of, 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 um, of belonging together and, and feeling alienated from the North, right? Then he goes on, we talk real funny down here, we drink too much, we laugh too loud, we're too dumb to make it in no northern town. Notice the, the, uh, the self-negation there, right? It should be we're too dumb to make it in a northern town, but instead it's a sort of a double negative almost. We're too dumb to make it in no northern town. We're keeping the, and then the word, he says the N-word. We're keeping the black people down, but he doesn't say black people. Now, this is an uncomfortable moment in the song, obviously. And it's meant to be. We have here a, a white, middle-class man of Jewish descent using the N-word. Like, you can almost excuse the snarky way and, and really almost cruel way that he spits out the word Jew in the, in the first part of the song, Right? Because after all, he has Jewish heritage. I don't know that that excuses it, but for many people it does. But there's no real way to get around his use of the N-word. There's simply no way to, to accept it. But that's the point. I don't think he wants it accepted. And that's also part of the irony of the song, is that, that the song operates in such a way that you kind of want to sing along. It's, it's got a rousing chorus. We're rednecks. We're rednecks. Uh, but then it ends with the we're keeping the, the black people down and not saying the word black, the words black people, but rather using the N-word. Almost defying you to sing along. In fact, Newman says he stopped playing it live because he felt like too many people were singing along. He felt deeply uncomfortable um, singing that part, but he wrote it. In fact, supposedly, and I have no way of knowing this for sure, but supposedly when he wrote it, he didn't put that word in. He just, he did, probably did the N dash thing or whatever, right? He was so uncomfortable just writing the word, and yet he sings it. But I think that's part of the point of his irony. There are two elements here. On the one hand, he's not exactly singing it. And that's a slippery slope. I know that. I know that's a slippery slope, right? Because if I pretend I'm someone else, then I can say anything, and yet that's how theater works. You're embodying characters and you're displaying characters. We're just, I think, particularly uncomfortable with the idea of song as theater. The other part is the song is effective because the narrator, who is unreliable in all sorts of ways, is willing to speak his mind as vile as some of that mind might be. And the song goes on to make an important point. Because at the, when he gets to the, um, the, toward the end of the song, he says, now your northern black people, again, he doesn't say that, is a Negro. You see he's got his dignity. Down here, we're too ignorant to realize that the north has set the black person free. And then the rest of it is describing the black person being put in a cage. Yes, he's free to be put in a cage in Harlem in New York City. He's free to be put in a cage on the south side of Chicago and the west side. He's free to be put in a cage in Howe in Cleveland. He's free to be put in a cage in East St. Louis. And it goes on. It's not that the, the south is racist and comfortable with its racism and the north is free of racism, at least not according to this song, that our narrator, as unreliable as he may be, sees something 
very clearly, which is that racism is endemic to the nation as a whole. There's no place that's free of it. There's no place where you can escape racism. All you can do is deal with it. And obviously this narrator is not dealing with it, but he's at least keen enough in his observation to see that he's not alone. And one of the funny things, I think, one of the interesting things about this, these two songs, Sail Away and Rednecks, we're still dealing with the same issues. The sales pitch that the narrator of Sail Away gives about how great it's going to be in America, that sounds an awful lot like the recent curriculum passed by Florida, right? That claims that black people benefited in various material ways from slavery. It's the same sales pitch. Except they don't intend for it to be heard as irony. Mm-hmm.